All right, welcome to Old Town New World. We're here in downtown Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Gervais. And we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of small town USA and Europe. Right, so today we have, of course, with us uh, Mr. Silent Micah. Hello, Mr. Silent Micah. How you doing? Well said. <laughs> Always hilarious. Always hilarious. Chris, how are you? I'm doing really good. That's good to hear, man. Did you have a good day? Oh, no. The day was horrible. Oh, okay. Good. Well, that's good. Well, you look nice. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The day was great. Okay, good. I was just joshing you. It was a really, really awesome day. <laughs> well, we have our actual guest, whose name is Stefan Novitsky. Welcome, Stefan. Thank you, guys. I'm glad to be here. Hey, man, it's a pleasure to have you. So, um, so you know, I think that it's uh, your name and your accent will make it obvious real quick that you're not from around, from around here, that you ain't from around here. No, and, and I jokingly tell people sometimes that I'm from South Georgia <laughs> because that's where I went to school and, and usually take them a second to realize that, wait a second, this guy's totally pulling my leg. Yeah, right. <laughs> You went to school in South Georgia? Yeah, I went to Mercer University in Macon. Okay. So, so you're telling the truth. I am telling you, the but truth. But that's your response yeah. to like, oh, that's a funny accent. Where are you from? Exactly. Oh, that's funny. Exactly. <laughs> Especially when that's you're right. up north or out west and mm-hmm. you know, people don't really know the southern accents that well. They're like, well, maybe it's like from a small town somewhere in <laughs> yeah, Georgia. Right. It could be, I guess. You don't sound like Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> nice. So where are you from? Originally, I'm from Vienna, Austria. Vienna, Austria. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. You know, I once whitewater rafted in Austria. Really? And I should have, I should have looked at a map before this interview but to remind myself where I was. Oh, there's, I was a, there's a lot of good opportunities for really any kind of mountain activities, mountain oh, sports. Man. I mean, whether it's hiking, biking, um, rafting, like you said, or just, you know, mountain climbing even. Yeah. I mean, it was gorgeous. I was there in the summer, and it was... Um, just green and beautiful and the rapids we we went down this river and um it was ravine on both sides so it was just walls going mm-hmm. way up on either side of the oh, yeah. the river yeah it was really amazing so w- when did you leave i left uh i guess it was in 2000 so yeah, 16 years ago yeah and you why i mean we just wanted to come to the states or? um sort sort of i mean i was i was still a kid at the time but um what my parents did is they, um, what, what I guess what the State Department does is they give out diversity visas. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, that's referred to as the green card lottery. So my parents applied, and my mom, you know, her name was John. I think it's like something like 50,000 every year throughout the world. I'm not sure how exactly it works. but So she won the green card, um, which gave all of us, I guess, the right to, to come and live and work in the United States. So Wow. Uh, all of us, meaning your whole immediate family? My, my dad and my mom and I, yeah. So okay. that's, it's only, well... Yeah, back then it was only the three of us. So. Okay. Yeah. So so they up and moved here? Yeah, um, eventually, yes. Um, my dad was first, and then my mom and I followed a few years later. Yeah. Wow. Was it, from their perspective, was it uh, that there was opportunity here, or just a change, a change of lifestyle, or do you know? That was when Survivor first started airing, so maybe they wanted to be on the show Survivor. <laughs> maybe. That's it could possible. Very, could very well be. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's probably I, I think I think it was more a change, um, driven by my dad. You know, he got sort of... Just sort of tired. He wanted to change the scenery, I think. So I think that was the, the main motivation behind it. So 
because he was doing well in Austria, so I don't see why why he would have to look for you know different opportunities or something like that. So I think it was more of a lifestyle lifestyle yeah. change. Were they English speaking before they came here? He was. He, um, was. he had uh, he went to uh, the British school in Vienna. Okay. Um, my mom wasn't. So what little school she had picked up, you know. In, in you know English one or English two you know like you have French one or French right, two right, here right, yeah. um, you know so sh- basically zero for her and for me it was also very elementary English when I first moved here hmm. and you were you said you were sixteen mm, I think I was thirteen 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 fourteen yeah were you able to learn it real quick oh yeah because um, basically we moved I think in late July and school starts up here you know end of August September yeah. so uh, our summer vacation back in Austria is a lot longer it stretches way into September so. Um, and we go up until July. So that year, my summer vacation was really, really right, cut yeah, short. Right, so you were bound about that, yeah. uh, But, you know, <laughs> oh, only six weeks. I was pretty pretty mad at my dad. But he yeah. basically said, well, you're going straight to school, you know, come come August. So that was a bit daunting for me because my English was pretty pretty awful at the yeah. time. Um, but, yes, to answer your question, I did learn it pretty quickly. Everybody was really nice and really friendly to the, to the foreign kid. Well, you know what, man, is unfortunate in this country is uh, that – uh, you being a white European, uh, you were eccentric and look up to as being multilingual and interesting, and and people who who come over from somewhere where they're brown and they uh, speak Spanish or like you know Latino, mm-hmm. it's, it, there's a, a racism or a bigotry towards, uh, and not everybody of course, but towards that where mm-hmm. that's not as good. And then you have that you know we're we're not a this is America we speak English in America. Yet you meet somebody who you know speaks French and uh, right. German, and you're like wow what an educated wonderful person. <laughs> right. You know what yeah. I mean? It is that dichotomy. It is very interesting to see sometimes. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I guess there's just so much history in that that makes mm-hmm. people that way, I mean. Yeah, it just, it's just silly social conditioning and just norms that get repeated, mm-hmm. just illogical yeah. norms. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. a lot of reality is based on that, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. That's true what you hear at home and, you know, what your yeah. granddaddy or your uncle says, you know, at Thanksgiving or something, and that sticks with you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, I think, um, you know, like, I think there was a big change, like with my like being from the South. There was a pretty big change at like my generation and my sister. Um, a lot of that stuff. There's a big gap between us and sort of like earlier generations in my family. And then like my niece and nephew seem completely removed from that. And, and a lot of that stuff's kind of alien to them. Yeah, my son's the same way. Like, you know, I don't prescribe to those you know kind of racist perspectives, but I somehow understand how they're there because I'm not too far removed from it, you know what I mean? Like like my, you know, a grandfather, whatever, you know, uh, uncle, whatever. But my son is so far removed from it that, like, he doesn't get how those things are even mm-hmm. possible, you know what I mean? Right. Which is good for the world, right? Great. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, at least totally. we're heading in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Less hate in the world is a good thing. It's a Absolutely. good thing, yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny, though, all I can think is you were 13 and you are public school when you got here, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Because it's funny to me when I think about public school, it's like... It's it's a whole different uh, conflict that you might have. Like any in, in public school, in my experience, uh, unless you were just like flawlessly, like robotically blending into the background, if there was anything stand out about you, then that's its own anxiety and conflict. You know, oh, which I, has nothing to do with the. It, it, it certainly was. I mean, it was it was the fact that everybody was sort of looking at you weird, and mm-hmm. um, it wasn't. I guess as a parent or as overt as say you know movies or stuff like that makes you to believe like i said every everybody was actually very welcoming and mm-hmm. 
No, I mean, I don't, I don't heard anything bad said about me, maybe cool. behind my back, but everybody was very, very friendly and welcoming. I'm curious, what, at that age, what was the biggest, like, cultural shock that you got? What, what was the one thing where you're like, I, this is so different here, this is so weird? Um, driving everywhere. Oh. Like, you have to drive absolutely everywhere. And where I was in Atlanta at the time, suburban Atlanta, is, you know, Atlanta doesn't compare like that to Charlotte because Atlanta is just so big. Mm-hmm. So really, to go absolutely anywhere... You have to drive. Yeah. I mean, from where I lived, and it was still relatively close, to the grocery store, it was, what, two miles? I mean, try walking that in this heat. No, Mm -hmm. and there's no, it's not a walkable thing. Exactly. You would have to walk either on the street or um, in the grass. Yeah, Yeah. right. And, and And when you look around, like, the people who are using, like, in this country, most of the time, um... The people who are walking or using public transit are the people who... Don't, can't afford to have what people would call, quote, normal right. ability to drive their own cars versus people with, you know, plenty of means choosing to do that because walking's nice and because mm-hmm. exactly. public transit is, it makes sense. You know right. what I mean? Right. I mean, something we talk about on this podcast all the time is how uh, this country has got to look at rethinking moving people mm-hmm. and how, you know, I mean, I love cars. I think cars are great and cool, and I think they're awesome. You know, I think they, they reflect your personality. It's very American, you know, this idea. I mean, I want a, you know, seven-liter Hemi under the hood. And, I mean, I love Absolutely. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but I want to be able to move around very conveniently. You know, I, we talk about all the time, like, if I could walk out of my office and get on a train and I could work on my iPad and then I could be in Columbia and have a meet, have lunch and a meeting and then I could be back mm-hmm. in downtown Rock Hill and drive home to my family, I could grow my business by two or three times. Absolutely. You know, so so that is fascinating to me that you, as a 13-year-old, you were like, oh, my gosh, I can't get anywhere. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. You couldn't. And, and that was, I think, sort of leading into... I guess the biggest challenge was, was social life, mm-hmm. you know? So everybody was nice at school, but the fact that everybody was so separated, you know, from each other was what made hanging out pretty difficult is because, yeah. you know, the school bus had a long route. And if you happen not to live by any of your classmates, not too bad. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. No, I'll never forget being like 15 and like me and my friends didn't have cars and just like sitting in each other's rooms, like watching movies, playing mm-hmm. guitar, whatever, but just like, it killing us that we couldn't go anywhere and yeah. then just it was awful and you can't you know yeah no you're right and, and i think that suburbia in the u.s is supposed to be like a contained environment where you have the families that look like you that act like you that make money like you that are in a contained safe environment where kids can ride their bikes around and interact and um Versus when you have a more kind of vibrant city integrated experience, you have much more kind of diversity of experience mm-hmm. where, you know, you're downtown, you're seeing people that are very different from you, you're engaging in different ways. And, right. you know, and, and, and there's been a longstanding perspective in this country, I think, that went along with suburbia that like that, that is unsafe. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, you see it in vibrant communities, mm-hmm. and it's not. Well, I think you saw the, you know, historically after World War II, suburbia sort of was created, you know, because everybody, people, affluent or more affluent people, the middle class moved out into the suburbs. Yeah. And now what we're seeing is, and you sort of touched upon that, is those with the means are moving back into the city. Yeah. Young people and, you know, even older professionals. Yeah. You know, even the area where I live, you see that all the time. You see people, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s even. All, you know, all mixed together doesn't matter, you know, where they're from or what they look like. So are you, do you think that 
it it's taken on more of a European kind of feel and look in that sense. Uh, in a way, yes, I think it's it's more of a global feel in the in the sense that um, with with all this technology and all this you know communication capability that we have you know in 2016, I think people get to see. It's so much easier for people to see what other countries and what other cities look like. You know, yeah. I can pull out mm-hmm. my iPhone and type in any city in the world, and it would show me hundreds of pictures. Yeah. what it looks like. So I think we're just more in touch with the world. We're more becoming more citizens of the world, and we're learning more from other places. Seeing, well, this this could work here in Rock Hill, or it could work in Charlotte. What works in I don't know New York or Kuala Lumpur? Who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I, I say a lot that um, the world that globalism is like a hyper-local experience, which is a, it's counterintuitive in some ways, but it's funny that as the world's become more global, it's also become more local. For example, we drink beers that are made right here in town, and we eat food that was grown right down the road, versus when I was a child, you didn't do that at all. You, yeah. you drank Budweiser, which was made, you know, and shipped all over the planet, and then you ate food that was farmed in giant machines. So, you know, so we've become more local and at the same time, we're more connected to the, to the entire globe. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I remember when I first moved here, staying in touch with my friends was practically impossible or prohibitively expensive mm-hmm. because you know, making a telephone call was very expensive back then, transatlantic. <laughs> and stuff like Skype and you know, early you know, voice services were just coming out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, you know, usually terrible because, yeah. you know, with a dial-up connection trying to have a right. conversation over, you know, <laughs> yeah. an, an early Skype, you know, an early <laughs> Skype, you know, an MSN or an AOL or whatever came before. Yeah. It, was, it was more pain than pleasure. Well, you could build a bridge with all those CDs that AOL used to send uh, out. Yeah. You could build a bridge to Europe. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that I remember, remember that, that yes. Yeah, they really were. <laughs> At one point, I remember I heard that, like, AOL, like, Almost like the majority of CDs produced on planet Earth were for AOL. That's <laughs> wow. a real thing at one That's point. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Probably somewhere around like 1998. Yeah. 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 Gosh. Yeah. yeah. Too funny, man. A lot of those CDs. So um, you went back recently uh, to Europe, but mm-hmm. you, went to, uh, you went to Spain. Yep. And where all did you go? I went to Spain, did a couple, couple of days in Madrid and then Toledo, then went on to Lisbon and Portugal. Um, from there, went to Prague. And then finally end up in Vienna, um, just, you know, visit some friends and, and family and just, you know, walk around the old neighborhood. Was it good to be back? Yeah, it was bittersweet. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it was nice. It, it's changed a lot since I've been back last. And that was, I think, three years before. So it's changed a lot since then. How? I guess it's grown more, well, like we just said, more interconnected, more global. Mm-hmm. It finally looks like a city that is, you know... In the 21st century, because in Vienna, you could oftentimes forget yourself and be walking through the street and you may think it's 1960 or who knows, 1760. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think finally the, the city and the country is moving more into the 21st century. I feel the, people were trying to hold on very much to um, old notions, I guess, you know, it used to be a big empire. So a lot of people in the older generation um, held sort of that notion of grand Austria when right. these days it's pretty insignificant. Right, yeah. yeah. On, like, on, a, on a global, global political stage. scale, it, yeah. is, it, is, it is pretty much insignificant or completely mm. insignificant. Yeah. I, I wonder how well America's going to take that when, when America finds itself insignificant. insignificant. I don't think yeah. we'll take it very well. I don't well. think, if I know anything about America, <laughs> it will have no idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> it will be the last one to know that it yeah. is significant, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have no clue. That's, what's that Paul Simon quote? Um, 
when something goes wrong, I'm the first to admit it, but the last one to know. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> funny. That's totally accurate. Yeah. So, um, so you work at Domtar. I do. And Domtar is, tell us what Domtar is. Uh, we're a, well, we, historically we're a pulp and paper company. Uh, more recently we've, we've sort of tried to rebrand ourselves as a fiber company. So not only do we make the traditional pulp and paper that we, we have for, you know, 150 some years, but we're now also branching out into other fiber products, uh, most notably that's um, personal care products. So anything from baby diapers, feminine hygiene products, um, Stuff, um, air laid products, which are like your wet wipes, right. things like that. So we're getting more and more into that consumer goods market. And one step further, uh, we're doing a lot of work in, say, biomaterials, biochemicals, trying to really get all that we can out of the wood chip, okay. um, out of each and every wood chip. Because uh, up until recently, about a third of it was just burned for energy, and the energy was recycled and put back into the process. But we're exploring opportunities where that material, that organic material that we burned off, can then be um, made into a higher-value product, and you can make... The stuff is called lignin. It's basically the glue that holds the wood fibers together in, in trees or any wood chip. And we take that stuff out of the fiber. The fiber goes to be made into paper, and small part of lignin we extract and we send you know research institutions and other companies for them to figure out how to make um, adhesives or additives wow, or yeah. bioplastics mm-hmm. biofuels out of we partnered with a company for a little, I think there's ways that you can make lignin into plastic bags that biodegrade in 30 days oh wow stuff yeah. like that so I mean it's really next generation stuff do y'all um, do anything with hemp no we're not you don't no, no, we're just, a lot cooler if you did <laughs> 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 nice, dude. Um, do you, um, is it all, what, what, what kind of, is it new growth, old growth, both? I mean, like, ha, what kind of forests or where is this land? Where do the trees come from? Well, the trees obviously are grown, but um, it's mainly from small landowners. So if you imagine your average pulp and paper mill, it's somewhere out in the countryside. We have one in Bennettsville, South Carolina, so about an hour and a half from here. And um, usually within a 75-mile radius of the mill is where it's economical for us to source the wood. So obviously if you have rural areas, less populated, more forest lands, woodlands. So there's, there's many small landowners out there that own these lands, and they simply operate it to log it, regrow it, log it, and it's a cycle mm-hmm. like that. So are these pine trees or...? Mm-hmm. For the most part, yes. For the most part, okay. they're softwood pine trees. But pa- a sheet of paper is roughly half and half pine trees, softwood, and hardwood. So like an oak, excuse me, or anything like that. Okay. When we g- w- talk about other products that we make, say, in Plymouth, that stuff that goes into all those personal care products that I talked about, that stuff is called fluff pulp, and that is made exclusively out of pine. Oh, okay. So yeah. that's better because you can regrow it faster? Is that right? Well, pine does grow a lot faster than, yeah. than your hardwood trees. Um, so, yes, I guess in that sense it is more economical, but we're still talking about 25, 30 years. Okay, yeah. How significant do you think the, like, move to everything being digital has affected, like, paper production? I mean, like, is that the reason you guys are sort of diversifying out into... Uh, yes and yes. Okay. Um, cell phones and iPhones and really, you know, the smartphones that started around 2007, 2008 have taken, a, you know, a pretty decent chunk out of our business because mm-hmm. you know things are easier on there it's quicker it's more instant um you know as a society we like things being done immediately i can pay my bill right now with one click of a button well why wouldn't i do that instead of sending a check mm-hmm. yeah. it makes perfect sense so paper has been declining since you know about the turn of the millennium about three mm-hmm. to four percent a year um which has led to a pretty substantial 
contraction and consolidation in the paper industry. So there's been a fair amount of closures and um, you know m mergers in the industry to basically have gotten us where we are. For instance, uh, one of our main competitors closed, I think, their biggest mill, which also was the biggest mill in North America, oh, wow. in Alabama, mm -hmm. northern Alabama, and 1,100 people lost their jobs. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, so I'll go ahead and put this here then. When I get in the mail, when I get coupons and stuff, and like, or just like if a, if a insurance company or whatever mail, physically mails me something, my thought isn't like, why are you mailing me this stuff? It's easier online. I, I get very nostalgic and I feel kind of sad and like, and I'm kind of like, it's like, oh yeah, thanks for sending me this, you big log. Everything's fine. We got years left of you sending me these things. Like, I get kind of sad. Like, it's like the, sad that it's disappearing. Yeah, like it's like when I get those coupons in the mail, I'm like, there's this weird like bittersweetness to it because it's like I know in 20 years I won't get this. Right. This won't exist. That's uh, interesting. And every time I check the mail, there's this like existential crisis. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting you mention that because you're not the only one that feels like that. Um, a lot of people sort of feel that nostalgia that yearn for paper, even as we move into a more digital mm -hmm. world. You know, there's still a place for paper. For instance, there's um, a campaign we did a few years ago to sort of um, remind people about the value of paper. You know, it was an emotional appeal, but one nevertheless. And the campaign mm -hmm. was called, or still is called, Paper Because. And you can find it on the web, paperbecause.com. And there we sort of poke fun at and sort of try to make people remember what paper is like. You know, for instance, there's one that you know, has a little girl opening a letterbox, and there's a letter in there, and the caption says, you know, it's surprisingly exciting to get a letter in the mail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's how I feel. That's, yeah. Exactly, and that's what yeah. made me think of that one little one. And there's dozens of these, you know, posters that you have. You know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, try getting cell phone signal to, you know, find mm -hmm. where you are on a map, on for a instance, right, and yeah, it shows yeah. a young couple with, a, you know, just a paper map in hand. Yeah. So things like that where there's still a place for paper in our lives. Yeah. And with it came, you know, we did little video clips, little skits um, as part of this Paper Because campaign. And um, the big thing was poking fun at, uh, you know, this whole paperless trend. So um, one was of a, of a couple having an anniversary dinner at a nice restaurant. And, you know, they're, they're cheersing and happy anniversary, babe. And she hands him a card, you know, and he reads it. It's like, oh, it's very nice. And he starts eating. And she's, you know, the woman is sitting there. It's like, well, where's my card? Mm -hmm. And he sort of looks at her. It's like, oh, you didn't get my e-card. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she, you know, throws her drink in her face yeah, and storms right. out because That's it doesn't carry the same value. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes it, sense. It's yeah. All, I think it is all about, like, the emotional component. Because, I mean, there's a lot of people that argue, and I think it's very valid, that, like, with books, I don't think paper books can ever die. I just don't. It's no, never, I don't think so either. There's no yeah. way. And I mean, even like like comic books, like I love the smell of comic books. And that well, there's something about how where, where medium is content. You know, for example, we saw in music where people didn't understand the difference between content and medium until the content separated itself from the medium. So, for example, mm -hmm. you know, you'd had records, and a record is a record. It's the physical thing. It's a record. You put it on. Then it became CDs. Okay, well, it's just a new record. It's just a little thin record. But um, it's a digital record, basically. The point is, we still saw it as a CD, and when you say you bought somebody's album, you're thinking of a physical thing. Like, I went to the store and bought an album. And then the digital kind of revolution we had to retrain our minds to say, when we, when we say we bought an album, we mean that we now have access to mm -hmm. a collection of songs mm -hmm. that is ethereal in nature and is not a physical medium at all. Right. Mm -hmm. If we want to put it on one to carry it and, and transport it somewhere else, we can. But the, but the music is now something, the album, quote unquote, is, a, is something that has no connection to the tactile piece of what mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. But then when you... 
rediscover how beautiful an album is, what you're rediscovering is that the physical tactile thing is part of the content. Like mm-hmm. a comic book's a perfect example. If someone told you out loud the story of a comic book, that's not a comic book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Even if someone showed you pictures of comic book pages on their phone, that's mm-hmm. not a comic book. A comic book is that physical paper booklet. Yeah. Like that's what a comic book is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we, we're, we refuse to let the um, content remove itself from the medium in the, in the case of a comic book, mm-hmm. but we've let it happen in uh, music. It's really interesting how I think that the whole digital era is about rethinking these types of things. You know, how much does the, the physical tactile, tactile thing actually, how much is it what part of what the content actually is? And that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I wonder, like younger generations that don't have any nostalgic tie to a physical album or a comic book or a written book or whatever, like how they'll treat things in the future. Because I don't think it is just a nostalgia. You know, I think that, I mean, there's a difference between, especially when you have the one thing, it's really awesome and convenient that you can get anything on your iPad, a movie, a book, it doesn't matter. You can consume anything on your iPad. But the thing is, that means that when you go buy that special edition Blu-ray steelbook thing or whatever, it isn't like, it's you, you know, an iPad is like this portal that you stick your head into and consume anything you want. And then a Blu-ray is a physical thing yeah. that isn't anything. So it's, it's not about shape. access to the content at that point. It's about yeah. having the physical thing. And they're yeah. different experiences. Yeah, so even yeah. outside of nostalgia, I think like if you're, you know, like if, let's say you're a really young kid and you, your parents aren't nostalgic and they don't, they, everything's digital and you're never really exposed to that. I mean, you become a teenager, you go to your friend's house and their parents have like a book or a physical movie. That's got to be kind of mind blowing. And yeah. I think you would see the value in it. I really doubt you'd be like, oh, this is garbage. Why do you have this? No, and, yeah. My, my niece, man, she's like 13 and her room is so full of books, you can't even walk into it. You know? Oh, that's great. And, and one of the, the, the biggest sort of the, the most repetitive lines that we have when it comes to this whole paper versus electronic debate is there's research that overwhelmingly suggests that you not only read better on paper, but you also absorb more information on wow. paper versus a screen, whether that's a monitor or an iPhone or an iPad or whatever it is. Yeah. So that's, you know, that really comes into the education aspect. You know, kids these days, more and more is done via computers, iPads. You know, every kid gets their own MacBook or iPad. Right. You know, it's interesting when you look at... Um, when you when you read older books, I mean, like books that were written in the late eighteen hundreds and earlier early nineteen hundreds and earlier, you know, you have you know they're hard to read in school when you're assigned these things, right? Because they're they're not zooming through the plot, they're not trying to make the words be invisible, um, and it's like you're watching a movie and you're zoom and your imagination gets to mm-hmm. zoom to a plot. Instead, they are poetic passages of language on paper that you engage with like like elaborate descriptions of a space and it's all about moving at a slower pace mm-hmm. with all types of layers happening and all this stuff and um i sound like an old codger to say mm-hmm. it but i think that the almost the, the human sensibility is changing because of the digital world and it's i think it's it's hard for younger people to patiently move through a passage of prose and appreciate kind of that I mean I don't know maybe I'm crazy on that I think it's harder for them to what you 
I think anyone's still capable of doing that. The issue is the buy-in and how much they feel compelled to. to because, do it, huh? yeah, we, we earlier generations always took everything. Um, it's like you always gave the benefit of the doubt to the thing you were consuming. And I think if there's one thing that younger, younger generations are, they're way less likely to do that. They have the benefit of the doubt. Please me. Right. Like, I, like, why does this deserve for me to stop everything and pay attention to it? You know? Right. And whereas I think... What is Charles Dickens to me? Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. What is Charles Dickens ever done? I'm busy. Yeah, what has he done for me lately? <laughs> yeah, what has he done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So do you see the same kinds of things happening in Europe that you see happening in the U.S. around this stuff? Um, to certain degrees. Um, one of the biggest things that, that really struck me when I was over there, not this time, but last year, is, you know, here you go out with your friends, you go to a restaurant or you go to a bar, and even if it's not you guys, but you look around and everybody mm-hmm, is yeah. staring into their phone, they're checking their Facebook or their Twitter or they're looking for Pokemons yeah. or what have you. Yeah. Back there, back home, you're actually having a conversation with them. Oh, wow. Like nobody's on their phone. They're not on the table, they're in somebody's pocket and they don't look at them for the whole meal or the whole time that you're having a coffee or a drink or you know, whatever it is. So would it be interpreted as rude to get out your phone and start looking at it? Well, to tell you the truth, I did a few times just to get directions and I felt completely out of place. I oh, felt wow. like people were looking at me and judging me like, who is this guy? Why does he have a phone out? I must hmm. be you know, a bloody tourist or something. Right, you know? yeah, yeah. Interesting. That is interesting. So that, that absolutely struck me because technology has caught up. Everybody has the same things over there as they do here yet. And they, you know, they Facebook, they Twitter, or they tweet, you know, Instagram, Pokemon, everything. People do all those same things that we do here. But I guess those human interactions still count for yeah. something, I suppose. That's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that fascinates me above all else. And, and I think it sometimes the the explanation is clear and obvious and sometimes it isn't and like in that case you know it's funny that meme exists as this newer term for us um and it was actually i think it was richard dawkins that came up with it to describe religion as a meme um and what it is is that way that humans perpetuate concepts and ideas that that aren't necessarily practical but they have to happen like the rules around is it rude or okay to use your phone in public that's kind of a rant. It's up. It, there's nothing. There's no scientific truth that says you. You. It's. It's rude or to use your phone or, or not. Rude. Yeah. yeah. So we decide these things, and it's like the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. and it just. Well, that's you know, the in the U.S. There's the big, you know, millennial generation uh, thing, and and I'm sure there's to some extent that in Europe too, because it's the digital native generation. It's like when people there's a whole generation of people who don't know a world without ubiquitous access to mm-hmm. all information in the world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's everybody else who does know the world before right. that, and is still fascinated that this new thing is even exists. And so the, that kind of the conflict between like the baby boom generation and the millennial generation has a lot to do with what are social norms, like what's considered rude and behavior got ch- changed so rapidly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because you had this kind of, um, I don't know, just different generation. And that's where you see all this conflict in the workplace where you have baby boomers and millennials in the same workplace. And they're living by a different handbook of what's, Mm-hmm. kind of normal behavior, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, my dad, who we weren't allowed to, if the phone rang during dinner and we didn't pick it up or, you know, put on the TV or whatever, now if he's sitting at a table with people eating dinner and he'll answer, he'll, he'll phone. answer his phone or he'll pick up and he'll look at Facebook, he'll look at some random thing or whatever. That's but, hilarious. Yeah, I mean, even though his he always 
clearly saw why that kind of thing was rude, all of a sudden the world changed. Yeah. And so he was just like, eh, whatever. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. My mom still gets mad at me if I pull the phone out uh, really? while, while I'm eating. It's like, mom, I'm looking at work email. You know, the, some things can't wait. I'm sorry. Yeah. And it's like, I promise I'm not writing a text message to my buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I knew in my relationship, like when we we're with my fiance, we're, we sort of both seem to be constantly. Wait, is she a Pokemon? She's a Pokemon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with my fiance, Pokemon. Um, we, we, it's funny how often we're sort of watching each other and how we use our phones and waiting to kind of accuse the other one of being like, you're not in the moment, like you're using your phone. Right. And it's this complete back and forth of like one person saying the exact same thing to the other person and then yeah. catching the person later and being like, you're just looking at your phone, you're not in the moment. You yeah. know? <laughs> Which is yeah. a funny thing because it's like I sometimes am... am as someone who, like, I do recognize when it's like it's rude to just start looking at your phone in front of people, I do feel the compulsion, just like anybody, to Absolutely. constantly look. Absolutely. And, and part of me is like, I beat myself up over it. And part of me is like, am I going to spend the rest of my life feeling guilty about having a phone? You know, because I feel the compulsion constantly to check it. And when I do, it's like I'm, I'm constantly trying to use my phone less all the time. And it's like, am I, am I cursed by Apple to spend the rest of my life trying not to use my phone all the time? Well, maybe. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's very deep, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> you just blew my mind. Yeah, I'm, no, like, I'm yeah. not sure what to do. Yeah. I think we have to stop making a podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do your, uh, does your mom, for example, have a smartphone? She does, and um, she's relatively new to it. She, she got, got her iPhone, I don't know, maybe three years ago. So she's learning, I mean, she's learning very fast. She's not, you know... Anachronistic or anything like that. She mm. she had her little troubles at first, but you know, asked me how do you you know do this? How do you download apps? And now you know I don't get any more questions. Like she will actually find a new app, and then I'll get an email saying, "Hey, mm. you know, your mom Honorata wants you to join." You know X Y Z. What I haven't even heard about this That's freaking yeah. app <laughs> or this you know new new yeah. way to communicate. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she sent me her first WhatsApp message because she asked me about it a few times, and then suddenly it pops up on my phone. It's like wow. I guess she figured it out herself. I guess she That's figured funny. it out. Good yeah. for her. And my mom is 60 years old, so good for her. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. Awesome. And so they live in the state still. No, my dad passed away a few years okay. ago. My mom is here in Charlotte. So um, yeah. Wow, and you live in Charlotte? I do. I live in uh, in South End, just um, just outside of Uptown. So South End's a cool place. One of those yeah. neighborhoods where you can walk. Yeah, and that's one Good. of the main reasons why I moved there. Yeah, it's just the walkability aspect. You know, I don't have to get into a car if I need to go to the grocery store, if I want to go have a beer or some mm-hmm. dinner or something. Yeah, yeah. Charlotte's it definitely. I don't know if it was before, but I always think of it anywhere around Uptown. I think about it being, and then there's little pockets that are really mm-hmm. walkable. But you know, it's funny. Like I, I lived in Orlando for a year, and that's a city that <clears throat> it's not designed to be walkable, but people do it anyway, and that actually is kind of a there's a negative component to that because like they have a lot of issues with like uh people getting hit like yeah. on bikes and stuff you know i mean and trying I, to cross an eight lane road is yeah. not easy it's not nobody should be doing that no. right yeah so some of that walkability is going to take some definite like infrastructure has to change because like i said it's we're talking about the big suburban you know era and how we still kind of struggle with what that is and, and cities aren't designed to be walkable yeah no i yeah i agree i think I mean, I, I think the European model is one that should be embraced. I mean, I know even, uh, like, Japan is investing in high, super high-speed trains to move people around. I, I talk all the time about 
moving people. I mean, even if it's to move them through the portal of the internet, you know, so you can have a conference call with somebody in, you know, Spain Mm -hmm. and it's like, it's nothing, you know, um, or you can be in Spain like it's nothing because of the airports mm-hmm. and, you know, the ability to fly from Charlotte to wherever. But but if we could have that all the way down to, you know, I can walk to Amelie's and if I could take, which is on the corner here, if I could take the tr- the a trolley to Winthrop, then I would go over there if there were cool restaurants and classes happening but I'm not going to get in my car and drive over there and find a place to park, even though it's only a mile and a half away. Mm-hmm. And if I could take a train to Columbia, I would go there more. I would build my business down mm-hmm. there. I would, you know, just uh, though I love cars, I just find them to be, um, I mean, it's just like what people have to do to mm-hmm. get places. It's not, oh, I might hop in a car and drive traffic uptown and yeah. check out what's going on in Charlotte. You know what I mean? No. I mean, I would never want to do that. Yeah, a car has no sense of, um, like, if we can get on a plane, like, it's really kind of like, like crazy if you think about it that you are, like, in one place and you physically get into this contraption. Ooh, yeah. And then when you get off of it, you're in a completely different it's part of the world. absolutely surreal. I, yeah. have, I have that sensation all the time. You wake up in the morning, and I had this, you know, two months ago when I came back here, you know, from, from, from my vacations. Like, I got on a plane 6 o'clock in the morning in Vienna, 3 o'clock in the afternoon local time. I was in Charlotte. It's like whoa. It's yeah, I was you know I was just in my hometown you know nine hours ago. Yeah, it was morning. World. I was having a coffee, and now it's afternoon in my new home, and I'm about to go for dinner. And that's crazy. And go to work tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. It, and you physically just sat down. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> that's all you yeah, did. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, how do you feel about um, with the with what's been going on in the news lately? Uh, what's going on in the world lately? And I know it always goes on in the world, but I guess it's been very visible to us in the U.S., um, very visible to Western European folks. Um, there seems to be, you know, just targeted attacks of violence that that are, uh, you know, have underpinnings of of, of military aggression. Uh, they're terrorists in, in by definition. I mean, mm-hmm. their their purpose is to create mass hysteria yes. and fear and terror among a population which means that they're random in nature so it doesn't there's no way to say well you know if i don't live near a military installation then mm. i'll be safe right. i mean there's nothing about it and, and that's the purpose of them they're designed to make people feel unsafe mm-hmm. to bring down the infrastructure of, of safety how do you feel that that affects um your family, your friends, people back in Europe, are people traveling? Are people afraid? Or, um, Well, yes to both. People are traveling, but yes, people are afraid. Um, you know, you hear it here, it's like, you know, you shouldn't go over there because something may happen. And uh, I, I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think just last week, saying that uh, European airlines, you know, the, the big three or four, or whatever, they've taken huge hits uh, over the last year in earnings because people just aren't flying. They're not going to Europe. They're not, you know, if you live in, say, Germany, you're not going to fly to France. You're going to stay in Germany to vacation or something right. like that, for instance. Mm-hmm. So they're taking a huge hit, and they, I, I saw it, you know, they're lowering fares like crazy. So if you want to go to Europe, go right now. Yeah. Because it's okay. super cheap. And, you know, like I was telling you, Jason, before the program, after one of these, you know, horrific, completely unnecessary attacks, it is the safest time to be there. I mean, yeah. as sad as, as sad and mm-hmm. as 
horrifying that is that thought is but you know uh, I, I was watching I think was it Good Morning America and they were interviewing an American family that was in Nice you know the, the morning after the day of you know that truck attack on, on you know Bastida and the, the gentleman was saying you know we're over here we've paid for two weeks of vacation you know now's the safest time to be here we're going to try to enjoy the rest of our trip yeah. mm-hmm. and, and that is really an admirable attitude because that's exactly what these crazies want is to exactly. instill fear yeah. and, right. and you know as a free and open society we shouldn't we should absolutely not give in to that yeah yeah no I, I very much believe in that we, it's something we haven't ever really talked about on, on the show before but you know I grew up with Star Wars and so it's like I can't talk about this stuff and not see Yoda saying <laughs> fear leads to anger and you know anger yeah. leads to suffering mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, that is the truest thing about it and there's you know I think I may have actually talked in the past about the story about the, the ship that was um, they were these sailors they, they didn't want to go to this island even though it was their only chance for survival because they heard there were cannibals there but there weren't that was just a, a legend they heard mm-hmm. so they tried to survive on the ship and ended up eating each, each other. other and like that is exactly wow. that is the whole point like those people who are in they're terrorists that are trying to like create fear because they know that that will that doesn't just in, destroy infrastructure and governments that destroys the core fundamentals of humanity yeah fear mm-hmm. is whatever you know philosophically or religiously whatever you believe fear is the root of evil that is evil you know because yeah. fear is the opposite of love it's the opposite of creation it's destruction it's like scarecrow in the batman movies exactly His yeah whole, yeah it's very true and yeah. the thing is they if someone becomes a terrorist they have consumed fear and now they want you to have it too so the yeah. idea is that they bought into it they mm-hmm. said wait no yes i say yes to fear and and well, it's I the weaponized fear exactly yeah, yeah. That's which why is more powerful up. than anything Absolutely. yeah yeah, absolutely. It's crazy, man. I mean, I, you know, Dixie and I, my wife and I were um, in uh, Tangiers in North Africa in 2001 in May, the end of May, beginning of June, um, which is the 9-11 year, you know. Right, um, right. And it was, we, we were thinking it was amazing. It was cool. It was just cool to see a different culture and, you right. know, uh, learn about you know, uh, a little bit about Islam and Muslim uh, culture, at least in that part of the world and all this stuff. And um, when we came back, only months later, there were the, the terrorist attacks and the 9-11 and all that happened. And knowing it, knowing about it in hindsight made the experience of being there in our memory scary. Mm-hmm. Yet when we were there, we weren't scared. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, it altered, like in retrospect, Interesting. the experience of having been where we were. I mean, it was a little unnerving just because it was so culturally different that it I just put you just on culture head. shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was culture shock, and it was we just didn't know how to behave. Are we going to offend people inadvertently? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but, it, but it became, in retrospect, and, 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 you know, Tangiers was in no way involved in 9-11. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. at all. And so I don't mean to make a unilateral type of accusation or anything, but it, just the point is is that fear does that to you. Like, it mm-hmm. starts to, you make irrational kind yeah, of... it eats away at you. Yeah. And, and like, like you said, it starts, eat, you know, eating away at the fiber of society. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what these people want. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Which is very sad. You know, there's got to, like, every time there's a mass shooting or a terrorist attack or whatever, I see this meme circulating on Twitter that's, like, it's very funny, but it's, like, someone holding up a banner, and it's, like, it's, I assume it's British, because it's, like, stop killing each other, you... Right, yeah. British T word insult. Yeah. I'm gonna say on the show, um, and it's funny because I think that I don't think you can say 
be okay or like don't don't be evil i think right. that you have to say be amazing like cuz i don't think people understand don't be bad I think people understand, I think you are amazing and you can do great things. Yeah, like, let's be exceptional. Because, something. yeah. You because, can rally around that. Exactly. You can't rally around, don't be bad. Exactly. And <laughs> right. see, and that's what everyone who leads a terrorist organization knows. They right. can inspire someone. Yeah. They can, which it's so, what breaks my heart about it above all else is that you have all these people dedicating themselves, breaking their backs to tear people down. Right, And yeah. to tear down buildings and to tear down things other people created. It's totally illogical. There's no reason. All it is is easy to understand. That's right. it. Where all of a sudden it's not easy to understand that, well, Steve Jobs was one person, you know, and Steve Wozniak was just one person, and I could never do that. But I can go punch somebody in the face. That's right, easy. Yeah. I get it. The thing is, is like both of those take effort, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I just think that, and I think for younger generations, they do feel that way, that they're part of a, an exciting new thing. There's a new ideas, you know? And I, so I think the solution is not stop killing people. The solution is like, do amazing do things. Do great things. Yeah, get so out there and do When stuff. you go back to Europe, do you see, um, Stefan, do you see uh, Stefan, right? Either one. Either <laughs> one. Uh, what, what do they call you back in Vienna? Uh, Stefan. Stefan. Yeah. All right. But, but my Polish parents call me Stefan, so it just Stefan. really depends who I'm okay. talking to. <laughs> so that's why I said either, either one okay, works. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Okay, good. So, but um, do you feel... Um, oh my gosh, this place is, people are xenophobic and scared and they're kind of bigots and they're kind of behind. Or do you feel, God, people, this is such a positive time. Energy's good. Things are happening. How do you feel when you... Uh, it's usually both. Really? It's, 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 it's mixed emotions, just like here, you know, because you see people that are uh, on one side of the debate and there's people that are on the other side of the debate. Yeah. So whether you're talking about migrants or whether you're talking about terrorism or you're talking about anything else, you're going to find people on one side of it and on the other side of it. So, for instance, when this whole you know migrant crisis sort of broke last year, I saw you know, my friends on Facebook were you know, at the train station welcoming folks with blankets and food and, right. and, and water. And then there were others decrying them all as terrorists right, right. so uh, it's it's both it, it's absolutely both just like here you know there's people that uh, want to embrace it or you know be open-minded and others that want to close off yeah okay huh what about the the government there that's a little bit more complicated because i guess it depends on the on the on the individual country and what you know what i guess political party is running it uh, let's say in your home in vienna and in austria well at first, the country, the politics were very, very open, very welcoming, partly because, well, they had no choice because that's the route that the people were coming through Germany, you know, through the Balkans, Austria, into Germany, and then ideally onto Sweden because that was like their mecca. Germany and Sweden were like the places to be for these folks escaping, you know, violence and destruction like you were talking about a few minutes ago. So at first, the politics were very open, but I think, I guess there was some naivete also on, on part of... of of the government and of the people that just wanted to blindly let people in because yeah. it is a different culture and people don't always want to assimilate. And you have those cases that get, well, that are terrible, but get blown out of proportion by the media. Yeah. And then you paint a whole group as something that they're really not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So is there a sense still in Austria does does World War Two still hang heavy in people's memories, or is that kind of passed? It's starting to pass. Um, Austria is an interesting example because the mentality in Austria is that there really isn't any blame for the war on Austria, um, because most of the blame happened to land on Germany, right? Uh, for 
you know, whether you agree with that or not, it doesn't matter. But Austria was also involved in the war and they were an ally of Germany, but yet somehow, uh, I mean, okay, let's just go back a step. I was taught in school that Austria was innocent. How about that? Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And um, whether that was my teacher's opinion or what was written in the textbook, I don't know. I was too young at the time. But looking back on it and reflecting and being a, a, a student of history, you know, I, I know that statement to be, well, untrue. I, I know it to be a lie because there was plenty of, of, of Austrian war criminals and people that collaborated and, and actively cheered. Yeah. So, um, but I guess to go back to your question, as that generation is slowly dying out, people are more and more forgetting about it. Right. And same as in Germany. Now you can, you know, you've got, you came, there was a movie that came out last year where, um, you know, obviously a fictional movie, but somewhat of a dark comedy where Hitler didn't, you know, kill himself. He woke up in 2015 Berlin. And, you know, he was still obviously Hitler, but people were embracing him as this, you know, figure of change because he was doing something against a corrupt and stuck system. I mean, yeah. again, this is a movie, but yeah. the fact that a movie like that can come out in Germany mm-hmm. and it not be banned right, or, you right, know, yeah. pulled or criticized widely is, is something to be said of, 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 you know, how far society has come there. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, how you know how they have, I guess, dealt with the past, yeah, or really apologized for the past, or tried to atone for. Right, yeah, it's very interesting. I, you know, the America deals with um, hundreds of years later the aftermath of of slavery, mm-hmm. and um, very much so, very mm-hmm. much so. And it, it is, it is. I mean, it defines a lot of our present culture in terms of like how things happen from a socioeconomic history. I mean, it's just a a continuation of socioeconomics and you can watch it happen in the macro sense. But, you know, in the, in the kind of, in the trenches of, of just being a Southern American, you know, you got a strong feeling of like, I didn't, I didn't do any of that. I mean, that's not, you know, among the kind of white folk, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, that's not my problem, dude. You know, um, and so you have a lot of disconnect where you have uh, people saying, well, okay, we're not talking about whether any of us did anything wrong. We're talking about why things are the way they are from a macro historical mm-hmm. evolution perspective. Yeah, it's not uh, uh, fair or what? not fair, what's the word? I, it's, it's not convenient, but it's like... It's true. Like it's it, an you can't, inconvenient. It's an inconvenient truth. truth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's like as a kid, if like if you're or if your parents had like a messy divorce and you know they were whatever and it was like this awful situation or whatever, you'd never be like, well, I didn't have a messy divorce, so I don't got anything to do with my it. problem. Not yeah. my problem. Right. Yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. Right. You know, you can't. It's very sad and inconvenient it's for you. It's part of who you are. But it's part of who you are. It's yeah. in it's in the mechanics that make you, and it's sad, yeah. and maybe you didn't do anything, well, that's but it's there. that's a good analogy, because, I mean, even as long ago as that was, that's in the mechanics of, of how our society yeah. and culture works, you know? Yeah, and see, and unlike with, uh, you know, in a, a couple has problems, they either split up, or they start a new couple. They become right. a new thing. And see, countries can't really do that. You have a civil war. You, well, you, you know, the South tried. Yeah, we did <laughs> try, North I guess. Like, no, you can't do that. We said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> right, true. So yeah. we just, we, we ended up being this uh, unhappy couple, kind of, yeah. for a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So um, you, you work in Fort Mill. You live in Charlotte. Um, and you're from Vienna. Um, and you vacation over there when you can go back and whatnot. I mean... Your job, you know, you got a good job, and uh, I guess you enjoy your home here in Charlotte. It, it, are your plans to uh, 
generally stay in this part of the world for most of the rest of your life? Are you wanting to head out or you don't know? Or? I've, honestly, in my experience, what we want from life doesn't necessarily always come to be true. So I try to take it day by day and see where life takes me because, you know, when I first came to the States, I would have never imagined that, you know, well, I'd be here in Charlotte, for instance, you know, having this combo with you guys. I thought I'd be completely somewhere different or back home in Europe or right. who knows what. And I would have probably even told you that five years ago. So life just tends you tends to throw your curveballs every now and again, and you just have to learn to roll with them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, ideally, would I like to go somewhere else? Sure, because I just have that personality. I can't sit too long in a right, place. Yeah. I love to travel. I love to see new places. So just by by virtue of that, you know, I would like to move on. But you know, like you just said, I have a, I have a good job. I, I like Charlotte. So as long as everything is, is correct in those two, I guess, regards, then I have no reason to move on. Do you um, romanticize Europe or is Europe kind of old hat for you? Like, eh, Oh, I definitely romanticize it. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I have since I've been here. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been, you know, like the one, the sort of the one overarching I guess sort of goal or maybe dream, I think, is is the better word of just, you know, going back because it's where I'm from and it's where I still less and less so but I still feel the most ties to yeah. even though America has been a great home to me over yeah. the last you know 15, 15 20 years whatever yeah yeah I know when I was in uh, I've been in this American South most of my life I mean I've traveled a good bit but um, I've been just you know kind of exploring sea and vacation style but a couple times I stayed a little bit longer in a couple places like I stayed uh, six months in uh the Northeast up in uh, Vermont. And uh, to me, that was a long time. And I've never romanticized the South more than I did when I was up in the Northeast. You know what I mean? right, right. <laughs> it took on this mythical kind of quality. Yeah, you know, I talked about it like it was the greatest place on the planet, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. So I can see how that's, that's It, it really is that notion of the grass being greener on the other side. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's wherever you're not somewhere else is better yeah. yeah that's very true and I think additionally like the way that so many writers write about the place they grew up and the time period they grew up in songwriters mm-hmm. will you know like if they get out of their small town they're going to be writing songs about that small town when they're in their 50s yeah. and it, it is the grass is always greener but it's also just the perspective we have the eyes we see the world with when we're little, mm-hmm. we never get them back. Right. You know, that's we try, true. but we don't ever get them back. And so mm-hmm. that adds to it. That's why you always are in love with pieces of, you know, things you saw when you were a kid and the place you were. Absolutely. Well, well um, it was Thomas Wolfe who said, you can't go home again. And I don't know yeah. if I believe in that, but um, does that ring true to you? Yes, absolutely. Because, um, uh, you know, as I've grown older and I've, I've, I've sort of reflected on, you know, my life so far and where life has taken me so far, you know, you, you um, okay, you can cut this because I completely just lost oh, my train oh, of thought. Yeah. I think we're going to start crying. No, no, no. Um, um, <laughs> I promised myself I <laughs> No, no, I'm sorry. Repeat the question. I'll start over okay, because so, I um, completely forgot the question. No worries. No worries. <laughs> so uh, it was Thomas Wolfe who said, you can't go home again, and I don't know um, whether I think I, he was talking to you. He, oh, he was talking to me. Gotcha. Yeah, you, well, I don't. I don't know. Oh, you, Jason. Yeah, comma, Jason can't go home. You again. can't go home. Again. Everybody else, you guys are good. Yeah, I don't know necessarily if I believe in that, but what do you? What's your take? Um, on that? Well, the thing is, I, I've, um, as I've as I've gone back and thought on my life so far, I've come to realize that having been in the states for so long, you know, I've never quite grew accustomed to it i still see it you know it's my home i live here i like it but you know you don't feel that connection i don't feel that connection to that to this place you know to the states or you know to charlotte 
as strongly as I do to, say, Vienna. But then when I go back there, I realize I'm a stranger in my hometown. Right, yeah. And it's not the same place that I remember. It's not the same place that I grew up in. Even though, you know, the buildings generally look the same, uh, you know, the, the subway runs the same, and people generally look the same, but it's not the same place that I grew up in. So I, I, I've, at times I've definitely felt that I don't have a home. Yeah. So, yes, that statement does sort of um, ring true, and it's, you know, sort of a... a melancholic statement or melancholic state of mind yeah but. it is yeah well we'll go back to what you said at the beginning i mean you are a, a, a i guess your home is the world i mean you're a citizen of the world you know that's a an ancient greek famously said that and now here we are mm, right. thousands of years later absolutely. saying the same absolutely. thing you know absolutely it's very cool so i want to thank you for being on the podcast well thank you for having me oh it's been a pleasure man we um we are now a global empire, so absolutely, please send ready this, to take over the world. Exactly, yeah, send this to somebody uh, back home. And I will. I we'll get some European will. listeners. Chris, you want to jump in with something here? Oh no, actually, you know what? I'll add a positive note to that. Okay, I good. think statements like "you can't go home" or uh, Zach Braff said in Garden State, "they homesick for a place I've never been." Those are statements about awareness, I think, of of that reality. But on the other side of that is. It's, it is about perspective. Yeah. So the only other side of that is you, you have to find a new way to f- understand what home is. What home is. Mm-hmm. And they don't say that piece, but that's there, you know, because yeah, we think, do. I think that hits the nail absolutely in the head. Yeah. Well, then we should stop there. Good yeah, gracious. Yep. Cut it. That's absolutely. wiser than anything Silent Micah could have ever said. You're out, Silent Micah. You're in, Chris. He, well, because the guy, you know, just saying a lot of big words doesn't make you smart. Silent exactly, Micah. Silent Micah. You got to give up on that. <laughs> Sophomoric is what it is. <laughs> Try, so, try to say a little less and mean a little more. Sheesh. All right, well. Whoa, Silent Mike. That was uncalled for. Good gracious. <laughs> no. I guess we'll see you next week on uh, Old Town, New World. Thanks for listening.